Good morning. You know, uh, every once in a while, as a preacher, you write a sermon, and you kind of know that if there's a sermon that you're going to get frustrated emails about later, that this is going to be it, and this is going to be it. Uh, so um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 21 today. So some of you might know what that is and know why I said that. Um, Today, we are talking about marriage and the role of marriage in the church. So we're in this series called Y'all, and this series is about what the church is and how the church functions and what the relationships are in the church. So we started off by saying the church is a community. It's by definition a community. And then last week, Chelsea taught us about how we as individuals, married or not, find our identity in the Lord. And that when we're trying to find our identity in something else to fulfill us, that that thing will never satisfy. We find our identity, our fulfillment from connection to community and from the love of the Father, whether we ever get married or not. Now, today, we're talking about marriage and how marriage relates to those of us who are married, those of us who are not married, even those of us who might never get married, and what the role of marriage in the church is. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, it says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We come to you today asking that you would speak to us. Whatever is from me, my thoughts or my opinions, let them be noticed so they can be laid down and rejected. But what is from you and faithful to your word, let it echo in our hearts. Let it capture us deeply that we might become more like you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. If you've uh, been at the fold for a while, you might know that this is generally the time in the sermon where I tell a kind of ridiculous, embarrassing story about myself or like ask a ridiculous question or something like that. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to start differently this morning because we at the fold strive. We endeavor to be a community that acknowledges the tension, that doesn't overlook difficult things, that, that names nuance when we find it. 
And today we're talking about marriage. And we're talking about marriage in relationship with the church. And the reality is that though marriage is often talked about cavalierly and flippantly and with jokes in the church, that there are a lot of reasons why this can be a difficult topic. There might be those of us in the room today who have been married and are not anymore, and this is a difficult topic to talk about. There might be those of us in this room who are in a marriage right now that doesn't feel very healthy, and this is a difficult topic to talk about. There could be those of us who long to be married but are not, and talking about this feels like prodding at an open wound. There could be those of us who struggle with our sexuality or our gender identity. So talking about a biblical and orthodox Christian view of marriage is a difficult thing to talk about. And the idea of obedience seems very daunting in that area. There might be those of us who don't ever plan to get married, aren't interested in getting married. And this seems like an irrelevant topic to talk about. And in a room of this size with this many people in it, there are inevitably those of us who have had this verse swung like a weapon against us and harm has been done. So talking about this passage specifically is uniquely difficult. We strive to be a community that names the tension We strive to be a community that is committed deeply to empathy while also committed deeply to orthodoxy, to teaching scripture as we see it even in the complicated and uncomfortable passages. And we say often that we're a community that can hold two things at the same time. We can be empathetic and we can teach scripture even when it's complicated. We resist the urge to imagine that those things cannot be held together. So today, before we even get into the topic, I want to say that wherever you're at today, your questions, doubts, if this is a painful topic to talk about, if this is something you've been hoping we would talk about forever, wherever you're at, you do not have to pretend something else is true today. You don't have to pretend like this is easy. You don't have to pretend like anything that is not your real story today. We can bring ourselves to the text and we are going to resist the urge to talk flippantly about something that contains a lot of difficulty. Does that sound good? That's something we can do together? All right. So we're talking about Ephesians chapter 5 as Paul gives this description of marriage. And Paul has spent the last few verses and really most of the book of Ephesians talking in detail about what it means for the church and for individual followers of Jesus to live out the instructions of Jesus. And in this specific passage, he applies these instructions to the unique relationship of marriage. But in order for us to understand what's going on here, we actually have to go back to Genesis chapter two, because at the end of this passage, Paul quotes directly from Genesis chapter two. And Genesis two is where we see the first marriage ever in scripture. And it's the story of where God creates humanity. It says that God 
made Adam. The Hebrew word there, Adam, really means human. God made the human and he put the human in the garden. He put the human in the garden with good work to do in a perfect world. But God looked at Adam and said, it is not good for a human to be alone. I will make a helper suitable. So God puts Adam to sleep, and in this story that's kind of strange, God pulls something out of Adam. Sometimes it gets translated a rib. The word really just means a side or a part or something like that. And from there, that's when the language changes to the male and female in the Hebrew. So the human is put to sleep and divided, and we have Adam and Eve. And it's later on in this chapter that we have this quote that uh, Paul is referencing where God says in Genesis that this is why it is said that a husband will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Because that which was divided is that which can be united. Are you tracking with me so far? Now there are a couple of really important things to note here. When God created the first marriage, he created a marriage of perfect unity. Both fully made in the image of God, fully bearing the image of God, without competition, without conflict, without one having an edge over the other. Sometimes when we hear helper suitable through a mistranslation, we kind of interpret that to mean God made a man and he made a sidekick. That is not what the story says, all right? God did not make a male Batman and a female Robin. That's not how this ma- that's happened. What the story says is that God made a helper, the Hebrew word is a zare, suitable. That word suitable in the Hebrew can imply eye to eye, like if you were to stand and look eye to eye with someone. And the word zare can also be translated rescue. It's often used in the Old Testament to mean the intervention of the Holy Spirit when someone was going to die without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. So another way that you could translate helper suitable is rescuer eye to eye with you. So God said it's not good for the human to be alone. I will make a rescuer. I will make a helper. I will make a partner that's eye to eye. Different, divided, but perfect unity. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, you know that almost immediately, sin enters the picture. Adam and Eve choose sin. And in Genesis chapter 3, sin breaks relationships. Now, this is really important. Because in the story of sin entering the world, we see that relationships are broken at every level. Our relationship with God is broken so that reconciliation has to take place before we can come back together that we see in Christ on the cross. Our relationship with the natural world is broken. God says to Adam, it's going to take toil. It's not just going to take work. It's going to take hard, difficult, concerted effort to survive in this world. Our relationship with the world around us is broken. And our relationships with one another, even in this perfect unity, is broken. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God is speaking to Eve, and he tells her what the repercussions of this sin will be. And he says these words. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will lord over you. 
So this face-to-face relationship because of sin is broken. And what was meant to be a perfect unity now becomes a competition. And now becomes a power imbalance. And we can see this mapped over human history. We can see this mapped over our own relationships. We can see this mapped over the relational dynamic of the world around us, where humanity in general does not work well together and seek unity, but we compete. We live in conflict. We seek power over one another. And in the same way, in a marriage, in the relationship between men and women, it becomes competition, and we see oftentimes one seeking to have a desire fulfilled in the other that can only be met in the Lord, and the other seeking control and power over the other. And this is a difficult thing to talk about, but it's one of the things that we have to name in order to deal with. Because if you look at human history, what you see is that Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 becomes predictive of how the conflict arises in human history. In almost every culture, men have power and women don't. The relationship is broken. You see this in the ancient world. You see this even in biology where there is one person who, scientifically speaking, has more muscle mass per capita and a higher bone density, where one of them is not restricted to giving birth, one of them has more freedom, one of them has the ability to neglect responsibility to pursue desire while the other one doesn't. One of them is physically stronger, and you see this play out over and over and over again in in human history. In the Roman world, you see this very distinctly as men had all of the power. Men decided who women were married, who women would marry. A father and a husband were the only ones allowed to decide who a woman could marry. And if she got to pick, it was because her father and the husband let her pick. We see this play out all throughout human history, there is an imbalance in our relationships. And it's worth noting that Paul starts off talking to the whole church because there is an imbalance in all of our relationships. As human beings, our desire naturally is to defend ourselves from one another, to use one another to accomplish our own goals, to try to get an edge, to try to get some sort of power or authority over one another, and make the other person do what we want, or to make the other person take responsibility so we can get away and do what we want. We see this play out. We walk into a room, maybe this is just me, but I would bet a lot of us are pretty accustomed to walking into a room and figuring out who has the power in the room and where you fit in and what you need to do to protect yourself and have the best influence and make the biggest impact. We see this naturally. It's in the world with finances, those who have and those who don't. It's in the world with class systems, those who come from a higher class and those who come from a lower class. It's in education. It's in all of our relationships, there is this brokenness and there's this imbalance. So inevitably, and also uniquely, it's in our relationships of marriage. Now this is really important. One of the temptations of our culture today is to overlook or ignore this imbalance. 
in our desire to see equality to assume there's no difference, to overlook the imbalance completely. And that creates a really complicated situation when we read a passage like this. Because if we ignore the reality of the world around us, if we pretend like it's not real, then what we will inevitably do is look at what Paul says and imagine that Paul is creating a power imbalance instead of acknowledging and seeking to correct a power imbalance. That's really important, so I'm going to say it again. If we don't acknowledge the brokenness in the world around us, we'll go to this passage and imagine Paul is creating the imbalance instead of acknowledging it so he can correct it. So we have to notice what's going on in the world around us. And this is not absent in our culture today. Once again, this is a heavy topic. We don't want to talk about it flippantly, but we live in a world where victim blaming is a thing, a tragedy. We live in the world where the Me Too movement exists. We live in a world where even Christians have posed questions like, well, what was she wearing? Which tells us who has the power. Very recently, uh, a British secular feminist researcher, Louise Perry, who has, has no religious affiliation whatsoever, um, she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution in which she argued that ignoring this imbalance and trying to imagine um, that this imbalance doesn't exist is actually very dangerous to women because the person who benefits the most in a sexual ethic in which there are no strings attached is the one who is most likely to desire sexual entanglement with no strings attached, men. So she actually argues at the end of her book, and I, I would tell you there's a vulgarity warning on her book, reader beware. Um, but at the end of the book, she, as a non-religious, self-proclaimed atheist, secular feminist, argues that committed, long-term, monogamous relationships with, with good peer pressure to prevent cheating in the ending of the relationship is the best thing for the safety of women. We live in a world where this, still, this imbalance still exists. There is still someone who has an edge. And once again, because we need to name it, in the relationship, if there's one person who can usually get what they want, it's usually the man. Because the man has physical, oftentimes social, oftentimes financial power or influence that the woman does not have. So Paul writes an instruction to the church. He writes an instruction to a church in which there are broken and imbalanced relationships. And this is the instruction that he gives to every follower of Jesus. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he looks at the church and he says, I know we live in a world where there is a power imbalance, but in the church, it cannot be used. 
in the church, you cannot use any edge or power you have over the other for your own good to build yourself up. It cannot happen in the church. In fact, we could assume that Paul is directly referencing Jesus when his disciples came up to him and asked who could be in charge of the disciples. And Jesus said, listen, the Gentiles, the people who don't follow Yahweh, lord over one another, but not so with you. He who wants to be the greatest will be the servant of all, for even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul's looking at the church and he's saying, no, we submit to one another in love. And then he applies this broad command to the unique relationship of marriage. In fact, in some of the earliest Greek versions of this verse, it reads like this. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to your own husbands. So the word submit is not repeated because the following verses are an explanation of how the general command applies to the unique relationship of marriage. So here's what I want to propose to you today. And I'm actually proposing you today the exact same thing that Pastor Hank from Boiling Springs First Baptist, of which we are a part, proposed when he preached about this at Boiling Springs back in April. And it's not because I'm just using his notes, it's because we studied the passage and we came to the same conclusion. Paul is offering to us a mutual submission model of marriage. A mutual submission model of marriage. This is the expectation of Paul for all followers of Jesus, even in a marriage, that we do not use what we have to get something from the other. We do not use what we have to gain an edge over the other. We don't do it. We look at the world around us and we see it happening all the time and we say, I will not because I follow the one who was equal to God but did not consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage but lowered himself. That's Philippians chapter two. He lowered himself to become a man, a servant and to death and even death on the cross. This is the model that we follow. So we never as Christians have the the ability to use power, influence to gain something over other people. It goes against the baseline of following Jesus. And this is why we need healthy marriages in the church. Because if you're single, you need to see a healthy marriage. So that you know what it looks like when two people refuse to manipulate, they refuse to coerce, they refuse to control, they refuse to backbite and to disrespect and dishonor one another, they refuse to do it, but rather they submit to one another in love. You need to see that. If you never intend to be married, you need to see godly relationships. Why? So that you'll know what it looks like when somebody is using their power for their own advantage. Listen, we need godly marriages in the church so that when a toxic pastor tries to coerce, we can say, nope, I know what good leadership looks like. We need it. And we need it for one another so that we can see embodied before us what it looks like to be loved the way Jesus loves us. Paul is giving us a mutual submission model of marriage in which two of us give ourselves to one another. Now, I hope 
that I have effectively disarmed this passage. I hope that I've done that. But just to be abundantly clear, I want to make sure that this passage cannot be weaponized ever again by anybody who's in this room. And that if someone ever tries to weaponize it against you, that you'll say, no, that's not what that means. So, a couple things that this passage does not do. This passage does not give us a layout for how decisions are made in the home. This passage does not tell us who does what. My wife mows, I cook. I hate mowing, I can't mow a straight line. I like to cook. This passage, and hear me say this, never gives a man the right to tell his wife to submit. Never under any circumstances does it ever give a man the authority to tell his wife to submit. Because even if you ignored verse 21, God says it, you don't. But verse 21's in there, so we already know the instruction isn't given to her uniquely. It's given to both of us. It never gives a man the right to tell his wife to submit. Do I need to say it again? It never does. Uh, I want to quote Hank, actually, because um, he said very similar things. What he said directly is going to be up on the screen. He talked about what the Greek word that we translate submit means. He said this, Paul doesn't say obey your husband. Hupakau, I know it looks like hypakau, but in the Greek, the Y is pronounced like a U. Hupakau is the word for obey. Children, your wife's not a child. Children, obey. Hupatasso is the word here. It just means to come alongside, to come under, to be willing to serve with and to be part of, in some way responding to the, loving sacrif the sacrificial love of the husband. That's where the word hupatasso means. That's the same word used in verse 21 that Paul instructs all Christians to do for one another. Same word. So this does not give us the ability to command, to control. The instruction that Paul gives us is to submit ourselves to one another. This is what a godly marriage looks like when two people are giving themselves to one another. In fact, what Paul talks about headship, he was actually using an analogy that was common in the ancient world, specifically unique to the Roman world. You could look at the works of scholars like Michelle Lee Barnwall, who's written extensively about this. In the Roman world, the term headship was very common. It's probably where the idea originated. And they would say things like, Caesar is head of Rome, his body. The mayor is head of the city, his body. A husband or a father is head of his household. His household is the body. And here's how this word, this analogy was used in the ancient world. It was used very physically. So we don't think of that as physical. We don't picture a body when we hear that. But in the ancient world, they would have. So they would have imagined that the head is literally the highest point of the body. They also didn't have a great understanding of biology. So they would have thought that the head was like the source of life for the body. So they would have said, hey, if you're going to go into battle, you better wear a helmet. Because you can lose a hand, you can lose a foot, but you can't lose a head. You'll die. Make sense? So they would have said the head makes the rules. The head calls the shots. The head is the most valuable part of the body. You can lose any other part of the body, but you can't lose the head. That's the way the analogy would have used. So do you see Paul using an analogy everybody knew, but completely undermining it? Because he says, husbands aren't head of the wives the way Caesar is head of Rome. 
Husbands are head of wives the way Christ is head of the church, who gave himself up for her. That's the complete opposite way the analogy was used in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the head of something never gave itself up for the body. That would have been counterintuitive. But Paul says that in Christian marriages, anybody who has an edge, who has power, who has authority, lays it down for the sake of the other. That's the way that a marriage reflects Jesus. Because we already said there's an imbalance in our relationships. Usually, in our marriages and relationships... If there's one person that could force their way, it's the man. Well, guess what? There is an imbalance in our relationship with Jesus. And if there's one person who could force his way, it's Jesus. But tell me the last time Jesus forced you to do something. Tell me the last time Jesus manipulated, controlled, or coerced you. Tell me the last time Jesus used shame or guilt to get you to do something. If you think he did, it wasn't Jesus. Because Jesus gives himself up. Jesus' own loving sacrifice as he submitted himself to the will of the Father and even the consequences of our sins is the embodiment of how we use power and authority in the church and in marriages so that we acknowledge, yeah, that there is an imbalance, but we lower ourselves in response to it instead of manipulate to get something from one another in response to it. That's what Christians do. That's the way a follower of Jesus has a marriage that follows Jesus. It's a model of mutual submission. Listen, we talk in the church world today a lot about leading in the home, leading your family, husbands and fathers being leaders. I think that's a wonderful thing to talk about if we, need, if we mean this when we mean leadership. When what we mean by leadership is the person who has power, because biblically, anybody who has some sort of influence or power has the responsibility to lead an example with that. And they do so by being the first person to model sacrificially what it means to lay yourself, your expectations, your desires down for the sake of the other person. Just for the record, Paul spent three verses talking to women and nine talking to men. Because in general, the dudes are the ones who have a problem obeying this. Not exclusively. There are exceptions to every rule. But in general, we don't like to submit ourselves to one another. Which is why this verse gets weaponized. Which is why a husband would tell his wife to submit. Because you don't submit yourself first to Jesus. You get what you want and you find a Bible verse to validate it. That would be called not following Jesus. That would be called dead religion. That would be called the coercion or maybe the manipulation or undermining the validity of scripture, things like that. Because Jesus says, submit yourselves to one another. I'm trying really hard not to get on all of my soapboxes here. <laughs> Listen, we need in our world today marriages in which, listen, husbands who have power, they have some sort of edge in society even, to lower themselves, to lay that down for the sake of their spouse, and wives who do the same, because the instruction is to both. We need husbands who will take responsibility and say, I'm not waiting for someone else to do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm not going to tell her to do it. I'm going to do it. That's how I'll lead is by me doing it. And in that, we show the world a picture of what Christ in the church is like. 
when we refuse to lord over one another. Do you see what Paul is giving us here? Do you see what the beauty of a godly marriage is? Do you see how it tells a totally different story to the world around us? Do you see how your neighborhoods need that? Your kids need that? Yourselves need that? Your single friends need that? If you're single, you need your married friends to have that? Everybody needs that because it becomes a picture for us, whether we're married or not, whether we ever will be married or not. It becomes a picture and an image and a model for us. That we give ourselves to one another. A couple more things and then I'm going to be done. Once again, I'm trying real hard not to get on all my soapboxes, but they're right there. (laughs) It is possible to misuse your authority, not by being coercive, but by rejecting your responsibility. So just so you know, a husband does not have to be like dominating and domineering to be missing the point of this passage. If you're playing golf all the time or going hunting all the time and not present with your family, then you have the ability to do that because of the edge you have and you're not giving yourself to your wife. You're not submitting yourself to your spouse. Just for the record. It's not just, sometimes, it, sometimes we can use words like empowering to mean not engaged and not interested and not giving ourselves to one another. So wives give themselves, submit themselves to their husbands. Husbands submit themselves to their wives. It's a responsibility for both parties to give themselves in deference, in preference, coming under one another. Choosing to serve and prefer the other person unconditionally. Lastly, I want to say a couple of really important things. Because might, you might be here thinking, okay, well, I'm doing my best to submit myself to my wife or to submit myself to my husband, and they are not reciprocating. What do I do? First thing I want to say is that in the case of an affair where someone has stepped outside of that covenant, the Bible makes space for that relationship to end. And it's the fault of the person who has the affair. We understand that? Okay? Second thing I want to say. If you are in a relationship where someone is physically, emotionally, or verbally doing harm to you, I'm going to be heavy-handed when I say this because I care about you. It is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to get out and get safe. You cannot allow the image of God that looks back at you in the mirror to be harmed. You cannot allow the picture of Christ in the church to be shamed that way. So get out and get safe. Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody on our ministry team. Come talk to Chelsea. We will figure out what it means to move forward. But this passage in no way means someone has to tolerate harm being done to them or their kids out of some idea of submission. That's not what this means. Okay? Now, for those of us who might find ourselves, who inevitably will at some point find ourselves in a place in our marriage where it feels like we might be doing more work than the other person is, where it feels like we might be submitting more than our spouse is, here's what I need you to know. The instruction is that as you submit yourself to your spouse, that you will show them what Christ is like and the love of Christ will work through you, that the best thing for their heart is for you to continue to sacrificially love them and give yourself to them. Once again, outside of affairs and abuse. Okay. 
but in kind of a normal dynamic when one person is behaving selfishly. We understand? The best thing for that person's soul, the best thing for that person's relationship with God is for you to continue to embody what it means to submit yourself to your other, to your partner, to your spouse. Because in doing that, you show them what the love of Jesus is like. That's why in many places in scripture, there will be instructions given by the author for wives to submit themselves to their husbands even if their husbands aren't believers because they're giving a model of Jesus and and their husband might see the model of Jesus through that. So if someone gets saved before their spouse does, does that make sense? We continue to model love because we chose that person. We gave ourselves to that person. Marriage is not easy. Following Jesus is not easy. There's no part of following Jesus that's terribly easy. Marriage is certainly not. Marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done. Jen and I have been married for 10 years and it's extremely difficult. It has not gotten easier for the record, just so you know. It's gotten deeper and richer and more fulfilling as we both learn more deeply what it means to submit ourselves to one another and prefer the other person, but it hasn't gotten easier. Because life gets harder the longer you live it. And when you're married, you're living it with another human who's got all their own stuff. But when, in in spite of the difficulty, we choose to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, we show the world what Jesus and the church is like. We show the world how Jesus uses power. And in doing so, we tell the world the story of the gospel inside and outside of our homes. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you who could, you're the only one who could, who could have used your power to get what you wanted from us. You're the only one who had the right. But you didn't. You gave yourself up for us. Jesus, the first thing I ask you is that every single one of us would see so deeply and clearly your self-sacrificing love for us, that you gave yourself up for us. You didn't have to. No one made you, but you did it out of your deep love for us. Let us be compelled by the unending love that you have for us and let that love flow through us to our spouses. But God, I ask that it would go beyond just our marital relationships. God, I ask that we would be a church community that refuses to lord over one another, that refuses to manipulate, coerce, or control one another, that refuses to use power or any sort of edge or any authority that we have for our own good, but that we see that anything we have is to be given away. Make us a community that looks like you, Jesus. May we all, single and married, obey your command to submit ourselves to one another. And as we all obey this command, may we embody what it means to show the world you and your church in our marriages and in our lives. We love you. We love you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.